0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. In this episode, we continue our contemplation of magic from the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty Archives. Before beginning, I'd like to acknowledge a comment or question from a listener regarding the first episode in this series. Grace writes the following, Dear Dr. Nikos, thank you so much for this delightful talk. I was so happy to be bathed in magic this morning. The thing I'm most left with, however, is around archetypal ideas of death and descent and rebirth. I realize all my sadness at the state of nature and the world is because I am living through a death and descent with very little sign of rebirth. I wonder if you've already written about that elsewhere. Best wishes, Grace. Thank you, Grace, for such a sensitive reflection. A poetic soul at work, clearly. And I think expressing something a lot of us may come to feel or already know that we feel. And I'll say first that your question is profound and important and love wisdom is training for death. Plato taught us that and the other traditions of wisdom around the world are quite clear about the importance of relating our training in love wisdom, our growth, our maturation as beings to our own death and the life and death process of this world. And so we have to spend a lot of time talking about things like this. And we will do some contemplations specifically around death. And I will, uh, for instance, uh, there's one I will share, I think, in the future about uh, how I helped my mother to die and what that was like. And I also want to acknowledge that you have touched on one of the reasons this series is so important for me because in discussing magic, we are talking about this very problem that we seem to be involved in a death and descent. We seem to be involved one way to look at it would be to, we're involved in a very serious kind of initiation at a large scale. that could be one way to look at it because that the rituals of initiation often mimic this death and resurrection show. So the hero's journey is often a reflection of this death and resurrection show that we discussed in relation to magic in the first episode. So on the one hand, Grace, I promise to have contemplations specifically about that question of death and how love wisdom relates to it. And also, as you continue to listen, as we all continue to contemplate together the nature of magic, we will hopefully come to A little bit more clarity about our situation and maybe think about ways we can relate to it more skillfully so that our response is one of compassion and of course we need compassion this is a sign whenever we have these are there is a blog post on symptoms of soul scurvy and when we feel at at such a loss when we feel grief when we feel powerless because all the things are happening to the world the world's being degraded and we can feel very powerless and we can feel like the soul is missing this active component of human life, which is to rejuvenate life, not to degrade it. So there's a real sense that something is out of whack. And it's why it's so important not just to turn to spiritual practices and say, oh, I'm just going to make myself feel happy and peaceful. I will meditate and then I'll feel okay. And mindfulness reminds me that I'm safe. The world is falling apart. So our practices have to be responsive to the soul's calling to participate in life more skillfully and realistically. And that's what we're trying to think about with magic. Does magic help us to participate in life more skillfully? And compassion. I'll say it again. So there are many teachings on compassion on the website. The resources page has teachings on basic explanation of compassion, also the four levels of compassion, Tonglen, The experience of the sadness and grief and so on is a call to practice compassion among other things. And it is the first. Remember that compassion isn't just to make ourselves feel better, but it activates us. In our soul, there is an activation energy that we want to do something, anything. And as we liberate ourselves into larger ecologies of mind, we find more skillful responses. So all of those things really we will touch on in some way as we continue our inquiry. So I thank you again, Grace, for that wonderful reflection. And last time we considered the experience of magic, and as we inquired into it, we found that experience itself is magic. We tend to take experience for granted and to have fundamental confusions about the nature of mind and experience. But as we look with increasing care and sensitivity We can arrive at greater intimacy with the nature of our own mind and the mind of nature. And we find a remarkable magic. For some reason, it brings to mind the old line attributed to Arthur C. Clarke. You probably heard this. Any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Our mind is not technology. And in fact, the quote Shows how primitive our notions of technology are. Our own mind is so beyond all our science and technology that it may as well be a magic trick. Scientists have no clue how this magic trick works. They have no clue how to make the jump from a universe of matter to the experience of mind. How do you make that leap? We know all sorts of things about what happens in a brain scanner when people perform various tasks, but this tells us zero, totally zero, about the nature of mind or how, how mind arises out of that brain, because a brain is not a mind, it's a matter. And so in fact, it, all this data we have tells us it offers zero proof, zero proof that brains produce mind. Scientists like to claim that brains produce mind, but it amounts to hocus-pocus of the cheapest variety. Moreover, we only ever have experience or mind to work with. As we noted before, self-help gurus, psychologists, neuroscientists, and so-called thought leaders love to talk about the brain. They like to tell us about our amygdala or our reticular activating system, But if any of them can find a way to improve the life of the world by pressing on their reticular activating system, they should win ten Nobel Prizes. We don't change our life by means of our brain. We can only change our life and the life of the world by means of the mind, which is what the wisdom traditions teach us, how to work with it. Lojong is mind training. Many traditions, that's that's the whole focus, what Plato was doing in his school, was retraining the heart, the mind. It's what the Taoists did, it's what the Buddhists did, the Confucians, indigenous traditions, train the heart and mind of the people. When we realize that mind affects the world, well, that realization puts us in the realm of magic. And that is our subject matter, real magic. It sounds like a philosophical mess, doesn't it? How can we possibly engage in a serious dialogue about magic? Let's agree that we want to speak about magic in a serious way. Certain intellectuals criticize what they refer to as magical thinking, and the dominant culture in general takes a dismissive attitude toward magic. And so it seems a contemplation like this either amounts to preaching to the choir or it amounts to talking to a brick wall. We we either totally think we're on board with magic or we're totally shut down to it. What is this? It can only be nonsense. But contemplation means thinking with an aliveness in the heart and an openness in the mind. Those who think they believe in magic would benefit from thinking freshly about it, as would those who think they know better. We need some humility. Humility stands out as essential in the practice of love wisdom. It's rather remarkable how arrogant we can become uh, in relation to what we think we know, what we think we're certain about. Humus, humility, humaneness, humanity. Again and again, I like to remind myself and others that these share the same root To realize our fullest potential as humans often requires humiliation. Landing face first in the humus or finally kneeling on the ground in a gesture of broken-hearted openness or feeling broken open so that the heart can be free. This is related, I think, also to the question that we had. Because there is a sense of humility when you see that your way of life, the way of life of your culture has degraded so much and has created inequality and has created institutionalized structures of oppression. It, it, and you can see why there's resistance because it's humiliating to admit that these structures exist, humiliating to admit that one may have benefited from them. So here we face the need for humility and to ask, well, is there a better way to look at the world, to understand? We can usually notice a special quality in the greatest insights of our lives. That quality we could refer to as transrational or non-rational. That doesn't mean irrational. However, these insights might have appeared irrational prior to experiencing them. And that's going to be essential for any serious conversation about how to live better and any serious conversation about magic. Now, it might seem strange, and there is a paradox here. We could call it the passion of the soul. The soul wants us to think something We cannot yet think. It might be thinking about magic, it might be thinking about economics, race, human privilege, white privilege, male privilege, whatever it might be, thinking about what our true nature is, what the true nature of the cosmos is. The soul wants us to think something we cannot yet think and this thinking threatens the ego So what does the ego do? It uses reason and emotion as a defense against the possibility of the new thinking. You can't do it because it's being fended off before it can get going. Both reason and emotion take offense to any suggestion that invites us to draw near to this new kind of thinking. In our culture, the dominant culture, we often find reason seemingly more reactive in some sectors, and we find emotion seemingly more reactive in others. It's become a commonplace to talk about moving out of the head and into the heart. But the heart has its reasons too, and our ego can activate our emotional defenses as effectively as it activates our rational defenses. In every case, what we call reason and emotion arise as interwoven. But our practice of making a duality between the head and the heart creates an extra layer of trouble. So that part is true. But let's not make the mistake of keeping the duality going. Let's not speak about reason on the one hand and emotion on the other and try to say that, for instance, magic is emotive and rationality lacks feeling or something like that that magic is intuitive and reason is analytical. There are certain truths there, but it's overly simplistic. More important is the reflection, if we could just reflect on the ways we get defensive around things, around anything we don't want to hear, even if it's our favorite subject matter, but we don't want to hear somebody say something we don't agree with. And let's acknowledge the possibility that our reason and our emotion can take offense at the suggestion that magic might be real, and we can even get rattled at the suggestion. Or if we already feel very open, we might feel very California about it and uh, think we know a lot about magic, but then we will take offense to someone's suggestion that is not in alignment with our belief. And all this means, too, that we have to recognize, we have to consider that we may have unconscious motivations, fears, and habits. Unconscious means not conscious. And our unconscious can get us to reject something and to come up with convincing reasons and compelling emotions to help us avoid the passion of the soul. And to keep away a thinking we cannot yet Think, in this case, potentially, of thinking about magic, of thinking about mind, of thinking about ecology and cosmos. Perhaps this makes sense already, or perhaps it needs just a little more clarification. This is important, or else we cannot engage in contemplation together, and this will just be a bunch of words that you either agree with or not. The sense of magic we want to get at is too important for that. So it's worth a little effort to arrive at a modicum of clarity and openness. For one thing, let's discern a difference between thought and thinking. We've touched on this before in other contemplations. Thought is the past. Thought is an elaboration of what we know. Thinking means something alive and a love, something fresh and responsive. Generally speaking, we live trapped in thought. But we can liberate ourselves into thinking. It's the reason why the sages are, are, are there. They're there to tell us we're not wise yet. If we can admit that, then we might admit, well, maybe I am trapped in thought. Maybe there is something else for me to think that I can't yet. So if we can admit in some way or other that we could be a little wiser, more loving, more beautiful than we are now, then we simultaneously admit that a kind of thinking is, at the moment, unavailable to us, just not capable of thinking it. Our wiser self could do this thinking. And somewhere in us, the wiser self is, you could say, already there, but it's encumbered. We are trapped in thought. The wiser self is covered over by it. So while we remain more ignorant, the new thinking remains unavailable. Nevertheless, the soul wants us to do that thinking. The soul does not give in and does not give up on our situation. The soul doesn't give up on anything just because we've gotten stuck, just because we've gotten trapped in delusion. So the soul has not given up on the world even seeing all the degradation around us. The soul's not giving up. The world's not giving up. Earth isn't going to quit. She's not going to hang up her hat and say, well, I guess that was it. I'm done. She's got billions of years left. And we have our time left. The soul is not willing to give up. That's joyful perseverance, that we don't give up on ourselves or other beings. There are beings who depend on us. So we could call this other aspect of ourselves wiser and that means we call it more loving more compassionate, more graceful, more beautiful, more inspiring, more inspired and the soul longs for this as its true nature and drives us toward this experience of wiser, more loving, more compassionate, more beautiful. But because this other way of being, this which sounds so nice, doesn't it? Wait, more wise, more loving, more beautiful, that's great, but it threatens the ego, because the ego is living how it lives. And so we get into trouble, we get involved in distractions. Uh, Of course, it sounds ironic when we put it that way, but why, why would we shut down around something that's wiser? Because remember, again, from the standpoint of where we're at, the wiser, more loving, more beautiful thing might seem irrational. And the ego takes offense, literally takes offense to it. And represses it, holds it at bay, and it activates our reasoning and our emotions to help. So we have a bad feeling about it, it's scary maybe, or we say, oh, I don't, that's not right, or then we have lots of good reasons. The poet W.H. Auden captured the essence of this strangeness in uh, famous lines, maybe you've heard them. He wrote, We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. That's wonderful, isn't it? Rational and knowledgeable people are sometimes the most dangerous in this regard, especially well-educated ones. See it in the university and in our public intellectuals because people like that have a lot of cleverness and information to draw from to make their avoidance of change seem sensible and mature. Or, as we like to say in, here on Turtle Island in this U.S. culture, this capitalist culture, we have to be realistic. <laughs> so we have to be uh, politically practical and realistic, even if it's not wise. Wisdom may ask us to do something that seems quite impractical, and that's, that's the ego's problem. It's not the world's problem. It's not the problem of wisdom. If it's wise, loving, and beautiful, so it is. Call it impractical, say you can't do it, come up with a million reasons. It doesn't change reality. All of us are subject to these sorts of reactions. All of us are, it doesn't matter how clever or educated. That's why again it's just a commonplace in America to, to say, well it's not practical. Plenty of highly emotional people to avoid what threatens their beliefs, it doesn't restrict itself to being reasonable or rational or argumentative. So, in some ways, the major problem in the dominant culture, though, I would say it has to do with the ocean of emotion and the drought of critical thinking. We actually have far more emotion. People think it's, well, we're all... The dominant culture is characterized by this critical stuff. Yeah, sure. But take a look at the U.S. and you see an ocean of emotion. A lot of emotional activation... And we don't know how to think critically. The political and economic system of the dominant culture deliberately plays on both reason and emotion. But it really couldn't function without stoking fear, anger, and craving. Those, remember, it goes all together with thinking. So people are thinking. The fear and the anger and the craving go together with certain kinds of thinking. Despite what many new age or alternative thinkers propose, we have Not become too rational, I don't think. It is a problem. It's really more the split. And certainly that emotions, we don't know how to regulate them. We don't tend to face up to our emotions. That's true enough. It doesn't mean that we've all become too rational. And what we call reason and what we call emotion, they go together. And some of the more emotional people in our culture make no pretense to sound like they carefully considered all the available evidence and made a rational analysis of the situation. On the other hand, many people do make such a pretense. I really considered the evidence and so on, even though the evidence is not really what's driving their their conclusion. Uh, They may not have thought very carefully. They may have considered the evidence from already a biased point of view. So rational and knowledgeable people do this. And they may even dismiss evidence and arguments that don't align with their beliefs. They say, "Well, it can't even be. Po- it's not even possible. I'm not going to consider that. It, that there couldn't be evidence for such a thing." So we face a sticky situation in general. This is just a basic problem in love wisdom. It's a problem of becoming wiser. And if you're going to discuss something like magic, wow, it's just amped up. Any form of wisdom, love, and beauty can threaten the ego as part of the dangerous. That's what dangerous wisdom means in the good sense it threatens structures of power inside us and outside. The more edgy the subject matter, the more likely our reason and our emotion will take offense, and then we can't even get started. And on the other hand, if the wisdom, love, and beauty in question seems to align with beliefs we already have, well, there we hold on to the beliefs rather than letting go into a potentially broader vision. As we move from mere belief to critical experience. In general, liberation means a release from some kind of false belief or system of beliefs, a release from some restricted form of life or restricted experience of consciousness, restricted experience we could say, you know, it's a movement from something that's constricted And that kind of release might be difficult or impossible to accomplish by means of reason or emotion alone. Plenty of traditions would say this. The best your reasoning and your emotions can do is get you oriented, but you still have to have the insight has to come. And so we have to consider what it means to ask our reasoning and our emotions to relax without giving up our discernment and our capacity to feel and to respond with compassion. First and foremost, we have to maintain our ethical orientation. That's where love wisdom begins. And we talked about that in the uh, start with why theory. You know, you don't start with why, you start with what, which is the ethics. We have to maintain our ethical orientation. Just because we need to free ourselves from the grip of false ideas doesn't mean we can open the door to evil. We have to think about magic ethically. And that includes thinking about the ethical implications of marginalizing magic. That might sound odd. What are the ethical implications of dismissing magic, or disparaging it, or ridiculing the idea of magic? And why would we do that anyway? What's at work in the unconscious? especially in the rationalistic mind is true there where we can recognize, say I'm talking about academia and this movement that we've made where it's as if there's a fear or superstition or paranoia about magic. (laughs) and There's a touchiness like immediately people have to bristle and you can see this in the kind of viciousness and aggression of the skeptical community. You can see it online very easily. And what also are the ethical implications of having the wrong ideas about magic? What if we embrace magic, but we have unskillful ideas about it? Even to say we embrace experience is not enough to correct this, because we can lack critical thinking and sensitivity in our experience. The people will try to hide behind supposed experience without being critical of what that experience is. The whole point of love wisdom is what you take to be real isn't real. So something even in your sense of experience has gotten out of whack. So we have to move with care. That sounds like a lot of framework, you know, but these are so important, these issues. How can we contemplate together seriously if we don't address them and bring them out? If we just start talking about magic is a bunch of information, So let's try to move carefully. We'll consider three ways of understanding magic. Two of them we'll consider briefly as characterizations of the essence or heart of magic. And these are broad brushstrokes. Then we'll move on to a description of the principles of magic. And these will come from the poet Yeats, who also touches a little on Grace's uh, question and reflection on the first episode. Now, we won't get to that part yet. So it will come. Yates is going to share this sense of sadness as he describes his experience of magic, but he's going to give us principles of magic that will give us a feel for some of the ethical implications and will maybe also give us a sense of the radically new thinking we would have to do in order to think magically. And what we will mean by thinking magically is thinking skillfully, thinking spiritually and ecologically. We can consider magic, first of all, as part of a philosophy of life, as a fundamental aspect of love wisdom. As we say again and again, every philosophy must fill a cosmos, it must hold a cosmos in its arms, and must help us to be embraced by the cosmos, to gain intimacy with the cosmos and with our own life. Love wisdom means attunement with reality. It means joining the dance. A philosophy or love wisdom that includes magic means a love wisdom that situates us in a participatory cosmos. It helps us to dance. It sees that the dance needs us and shows us how we can dance well. We could also say that a magical philosophy, a love wisdom that includes magic, means a philosophy of life that sees life as sacred, really, sense the wonder of life. Realize the totally relational and interwoven nature of life. A love wisdom that embraces magic gives us a sense of profound responsibility because it teaches us that we are connected to everything and that everything we do matters. It teaches us that we matter, that the world is alive and a love and aware of us, that we participate in the ongoing unfolding of the mystery. We do not participate alone, but countless beings participate too, and we are lived by sacred powers and inconceivable causes. Some of that may sound airy-fairy, so let's focus in on perhaps the most important part, Magic as a sensibility, as an attitude, as a basic feel for life arises from an insight into the total interdependence or interwovenness of all things. We live in a relational world, a relational cosmos, not a world of objects, but a world of living, loving relations. If that's true if we live in such a world in a, a sacred or wondrous flux and flow in which all things arise totally dependent on one another then we can reasonably arrive at a magical sensibility simple as that so that's one way to think of it a second way to think of magic views magic as an art of awareness In general, we still cannot speak of a philosophical idea without a cosmic context. That's a general thing. We just can't do it. So an art of awareness can only mean awareness in relation to our general feel for the cosmos. To keep things simple, we could say that the world's wisdom traditions consistently emphasize awareness. And many sages teach us that we live as if asleep in our lives. Any culture rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty orients its citizens to awakeness and awareness, sensitivity. An art of awareness, which we could also call an art of attunement, means a practice that helps us wake up and realize a profound attunement with reality. And this would mean Things that transcend the ego, they go beyond us. Such an art, an art of awareness or attunement, has at least two functions. One function has to do with knowledge and action. If we face a challenge, a problem, an illness, a crossroads, or any number of apparent barriers that require insight, we might try various things to move forward. Most of the practices of the dominant culture belong to the same limited and limiting style of trying to break through the barrier, trying to do something. On the other hand, the wisdom traditions, including indigenous traditions, teach us various ways to wisely, ethically, and gracefully liberate ourselves into larger ecologies of mind. So that an insight comes not so much from us as through us. And that insight, this is key, will not only be good for us, but good for the community of life. A shaman, for instance, may go into a trance and they may journey into another realm to seek the cause and the cure for an illness. And so they will help their community and they will keep the community attuned to larger ecological realities, which we can also refer to as spiritual realities. Generally speaking, the dominant culture tends to dismiss such things. But even in the dominant culture, we know famous cases of people solving problems in dreams, which they could not resolve consciously, And we know of cases of illnesses going away. We call that spontaneous remission. But that spontaneous remission seems to bear the marks of the influence of a larger ecology of mind. In other words, what happened was something more spiritual than medical. Certainly, that's why we call it spontaneous remission. It wasn't a medical cure. We also know that the religious traditions, even of the dominant culture, have stories of magic in them. For instance, the staff of Aaron, which turned into a snake, and the staff of Moses, which God turned into a snake and then back into a staff again, and which Moses apparently used like a magic wand to part the Red Sea. Many saints and sages healed people and performed miracles, which means they performed sacred magic. And nowhere in the Bible does the divine indicate that the divine itself will never allow magic. I mean, the divine performs magic, lets other beings perform magic. So it's obvious the divine allows magic. Especially with the right intentions, it's righteous Magic in these cases functions as an art of awareness that attunes us with the will of the divine. The will of the divine works through us because we've been attuned. We're not out pursuing our own agenda in these cases. Many philosophers have taught arts of awareness. It's central to love wisdom, to teach this, because it's about waking up. One of the greatest world philosophers of all times is still a contemporary of ours, Thich Han. He pioneered and engaged spiritual life and he faced incredible challenges, tremendous. If you read about some of the things that he and his students and, and friends went through, for instance, in Vietnam, it's astonishing. And they navigated all of this on the basis of their practice of love wisdom. And Thich Nhat Hanh had a very deep practice and he and his students speak and write often of relying on arts of awareness to carry them through impossible situations, giving them insight and poise to move forward in the face of otherwise overwhelming difficulties. There too, they were seeing death and destruction all around them. How did they carry on? How to navigate that kind of situation that seemed impossible? They relied on the arts of awareness. They relied on magic Which made things possible that they could not have, they didn't have any other explanation. Literally, they were relying on nothing but awareness and intention, the essence of magic. The wisdom traditions value arts of awareness most of all for their ability to bring us to insight into the mind and nature, into what we are. That's what the arts of awareness do. That's the best medicine of all is to see the true nature of self and reality. To really know what we are. If we don't know the nature of our own mind and the nature of reality itself, then all our activity will have a hit and miss quality. And even our successes will come with unintended side effects. We often end up creating countless difficulties for ourselves and others, for the whole world, by the way we try to solve our problems. Arts of awareness not only bring us intimacy with our own experience, intimacy with our own true nature and the nature of reality, But they also grant us more skillful, graceful, ethical, wise ways of working with our lives. All of this coincides with the essence of magic. So we could put the essence of magic this way. Magic means a synchronization of heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos. It's a practice of attunement that goes together with our participation in life, direct, intimate, engaged. We inevitably participate in life. And magic has to do with participating skillfully, wisely, lovingly, and beautifully. Now, that's the second way to think about magic. And for the third way, we will consider the words of the great poet W.B. Yeats. Yeats wrote the following passage. It's, it's not too long. It's easy to follow. And I'll let you know when we reach the end, so I'm just going to read it. Yeats wrote, I believe in the practice and philosophy of what we have agreed to call magic, in what I must call the evocation of spirits, though I do not know what they are, in the power of creating magical illusions, in the visions of truth in the depths of the mind when the eyes are closed. And I believe in three doctrines which have has, I think, been handed down from early times and been the foundation of nearly all magical practices. These doctrines are, one, that the borders of our minds are ever shifting and that many minds can flow into one another, as it were, and create or reveal a single mind, a single energy. Two, that the borders of our memories are as shifting, and that our memories are a part of one great memory, the memory of nature herself. Three, that this great mind and great memory can be evoked by symbols. I often think I would put this belief in magic from me if I could For I have come to see or to imagine in men and women, in houses, in handicrafts, in nearly all sights and sounds, a certain evil, a certain ugliness that comes from the slow perishing through the centuries of a quality of mind that made this belief and its evidences common over the world. Okay, that's the quote. And you can see Yeats putting this problem, the sadness, the grief. It's it's his way of linking the ecological catastrophe, the evil and ugliness we might see in the world, linking it to the death of magic. So the ultimate death and resurrection show for us might be the death and resurrection of magic. It died in the dominant culture. Could we resurrect it? and in so doing, resurrect and rejuvenate the world. That's one way to think of what might be at stake here. It's marvelous for him to s- <laughs> just, just just confess this struggle. I-, I wish I could put the idea out of my mind, he's saying. But he can't. Why? Because he experienced it. It's not a belief, really. He, didn't, he wasn't clear there. <laughs> it's not a belief. That's why it won't leave his mind. Now, depending on our experience, we may or may not recognize a rather startling fact about what Yeats wrote. Let's f- put aside our skepticism and just focus on something quite remarkable, at least very curious. The three principles of magic that Yeats outlined there happen to coincide with principles of modern cognitive science. We're talking about serious work done in the past few decades, even long after Yeats wrote that passage, cutting-edge stuff. In other words, though, we might feel skeptical about magic, and we might at first dismiss the principles Yeats uses to define magic, it turns out that these same principles are recognized as part of a serious scientific view of mind and life. Given that magic has something essential to do with mind, this wouldn't surprise Yates, but it surely would surprise some of our more narrow-minded scientists, intellectuals, and even some of our fellow citizens. The metaphysical police might put on their riot gear if they hear about this convergence of science and magic. The work of scientists like Francisco Varela, Zico de Paolo, Gregory Bateson, Eleanor Roche, Carl Jung, Wolfgang Pauli, James McConnell, uh, of course, Bohm, and others we could list many. They give us a way to scientifically understand the principles Yates offers. I'll repeat some of those names in a moment or in future contemplations in case you want to look into the research for yourself, but let's make clear in a general way that Contemporary scientists have endorsed theories and validated findings well within the framework Yeats defines for magic. Full stop. I wish we could have headlines and memes about this, you know, put it on Instagram. This is nothing short of astonishing. Once we go into it and let it get into us, it's an astonishing feature. If Leitz is right about magic and the cognitive scientists are right about mind, then, whoa! suddenly magic is the science of mind. The dominant culture has done a poor job at incorporating the shift from classical to non-local physics. The shift from classical to non-local psychology. The shift from classical to non-local cognitive science. The shift from classical to non-linear mathematics. But our science has nevertheless validated this shift. And we have more shifting yet to come. We're not done. And we need a little emphasis on that. When we enter the world of magic, we have to avoid the temptation to come up with a mechanism that accounts for these principles and their functioning. The primary thing has to do, at least at this moment, I think, with our philosophical vision And we may need to recognize that the dominant culture science could have no explanation right now, no explanation at all for some of the experiences of magic that we could verify for ourselves. Given their philosophical and spiritual significance, which means their ecological, cultural, and cosmological significance, we should maybe first verify these experiences, not merely argue about them or come up with some mechanism to explain them or engage in elegance theorizing on the basis of a limited and limiting worldview, which seems long overdue for a paradigm change. But before we verify them, again, we have to begin with an ethical orientation to life and situate ourselves in a philosophy of life rooted in wisdom, love, and beauty. Because if magic doesn't attune us with wisdom, love, and beauty, it will only create problems. So we, again, cannot lose our discernment. Well, let's consider these three principles in a little detail. Really, the first one is the one we're going to focus on right now. To think about the, this first principle from the perspective of cognitive science and critical philosophy. Now, the first principle, again, is that the borders of our minds are ever-shifting, and many minds can flow into one another, as it were, and create or reveal a single mind, a single energy. If we contemplate that first principle with a little detail, philosophically, it will make the others, I think, a little bit easier to understand. And then we could begin the process of experimentation and verification more easily, maybe. Magic is not a belief or dogma, but something we must critically understand and then seek to wonder stand by means of direct experience and verification. And we can look at this first principle as a kind of keystone, or better put, a, a mother tree in the forest of our thinking. Our current monocrop forest of thought doesn't have this mother tree in it, not really, and that monocrop behaves with hostility toward this mother tree. But if we look with care, if we take care of this tree, first maybe she's only a seedling, she's a potential mother tree, but we may find that this tree belongs to our natural ecology of mind. Now how can we begin? Well, See if you can do something without thinking too much. I know I just said don't think too much, but just respond as quickly as you can to this question. If I ask you to point to yourself, where would you point? Go ahead, just point to yourself. Indulge me. Now, it seems an innocent question, or maybe silly, but if we inquire into it together, we may find some assumptions about ourselves. A first question, did you point to your head? You probably didn't, and that seems significant. If you were pointing to yourself, did you point to your head? Most people probably don't point at their head, which means the dominant culture's science hasn't gotten to every last bit of us. For many, if not most of us, it still feels unnatural to designate ourselves by pointing at our head, despite the fact that dominant culture science reduces us to our brain. You probably don't feel like a brain, do you? Now, some people might point at their body, maybe even the area of the heart. Now, that seems interesting because some mystical traditions might gesture toward the heart as some kind of important place, at least while we live the embodied human life. Of course, those same mystical traditions would not say that we are really something localizable. Mystical realization gets us to see that we don't fit inside a body. It's not that our body has a soul and it's there in the heart, but rather the soul has a body. The body is inside the soul, not the other way around. Now, the leading edge of the dominant culture's science has begun to take this kind of non-local thinking more seriously. While powerful currents in the dominant culture's science reduce us to a brain, careful and rigorous science has accepted a weird suggestion, namely, that we might see as deeply problematic any view that constrains a cognitive system to a particular location including inside a skull, but also including inside a body. Let me say that again. Scientifically speaking, we have come to the place where we might see as deeply problematic any view that constrains a cognitive system to a particular location, including inside a skull, but also including inside a body. So let's go back to that question. What if someone asks us to point to ourselves And what if we sort of laughed and we said, well, I can't be localized. I can't point at myself because I'm not in a single location. Wouldn't that be a wild response? I mean, if we responded that way from a place of intimacy, not as a theory or a belief, but as an experience. We might call such an experience rather magical. Experience. that If I said point to yourself and you just laugh because you were having the experience that you're not in a particular place. Now, in fact, it's a perfectly scientific view as well. The science has become pretty sophisticated. It relies, in many cases, on complex, nonlinear mathematics. We're not going to get into all of that. But we could perhaps put some of the basic discoveries about mind in, in various ways and maybe the simplest and deepest truth comes to this. Mind is relational. We have a tendency to try to turn relationality into a matter of interactions between things that already exist in their own right. You see, like, it's, relationality means th- this thing over here is related to that thing over there. But the deeper relationality taught by the wisdom traditions and now integrated into cutting-edge science, indicates that relationality goes all the way down, so to speak. We don't find things that relate. But relationality gives rise to the fleeting processes we refer to as things. We treat them as solid, but they're just relationality. They're just a dance of relationality. The cognitive scientist Ezekiel de Palo gives a clear analogy to make the point about relationality. In a paper called Extended Life, you can look that up, de Paolo writes, As relational in this strict sense, cognition has no location. It simply makes no sense to point to chunks of matter and space and speak of containment within a cognitive system. Inspect a baby all you want, and you'll never find out whether she's a twin. That's a clear statement and a nice analogy, isn't it? Being a twin is something we cannot locate in a single body, it's a relational quality. Being a mind is likewise not something we can strictly locate in a body. Mind is relational. We can understand this in limited ways. Of course, we can make it too limited. We can actually even get a sort of glimpse of it. But usually our ego cuts off any wonder because it's a little too freaky. Just notice in, in yourself maybe that there's a, this temptation to still think that it's objects that are being related. But we do have examples, you know, and the examples both show us the temptation to go into the reification making things into things and also show us that it doesn't really hold up you know maybe you heard about Timothy Leary who made the LSD experience quite famous and even if we've never tried LSD i've never tried LSD maybe you have but you still i've still heard this expression of set and setting we know about that set and setting means that the context of the LSD experience profoundly affects the experience itself. Set and setting. The context of the experience profoundly affects the experience. The set is your intention and the setting is the literal what's the place look like. You have candles, is it nice, you know. Now that might seem minor, but it's not. Because the meaning of psychedelic, the word psychedelic means mind manifesting. Medicines like LSD show us how mind manifesting manifests. They show us, we see, we experience the manifesting of mind. We normally don't notice it. And people discovered what the wisdom traditions, including many indigenous traditions, have taught for millennia, that mind manifests relationally. And that means we have to go further than our initial thought that a mind manifests in a context It doesn't matter if we're talking about an LSD experience, which just makes the nature of mind and its capacities potentially more obvious, not necessarily, but to some degree. It doesn't matter if we're talking about LSD experience or we're talking about the difference between how we are with our boss and how we are with our spouse or our dog. It is not that our mind manifests differently in each of those contexts. But that mind itself is the interdependent arising of the contexts. Let's say that again and contemplate it. Mind is the mutual arising of contexts. Once we say that, we have really said mind is the mutual arising of all things. Because we lose the duality between context on the one hand and things in a context on the other. You see, when we really go all the way, it's not that my mind is in a context, but if if it's the mutual and interdependent arising of everything, then it, it doesn't even make sense to distinguish, except in the most relative way, an object from a context. There aren't objects. Mind is not a relationship between things that already exist. Rather, mind is relationality itself which isn't a thing. There aren't things. Now that should seem like a lot to take in, I think. We can maybe back up a bit and say mind is the interdependent arising of a situation or a holistic happening. Mind is the activity of interwovenness, the dance of interwovenness. It is the holistic happening of life. Or put simply, How you are depends on how I am. And how I am depends on how you are. that's true even in this podcast. How I speak affects how you listen, how you participate, or even the fact that we had a wonderful reflection changed the whole energy of the podcast in a way. Or when you get home and your dog comes running up to you, your mind changes. You're different. When you live in a built environment with plastic and screens and flat surfaces and sharp edges and corners and artificial light and machine noises of all kinds, that's you, that's your mind. When you instead go to a place where you primarily sense grasses and trees, Branches and leaves swaying in the wind, rivers rolling and whispering, birds singing and flying, you hear the flapping of their wings in the sky, horses galloping and calling out to each other, that's you, that's your mind. All of that makes you, constitutes you, and you make all of that, you make it. So the context, uh, concept of context can become a problematic concept because we habitually think that we have a mind and it changed because of the context. Like we're walking around, you know, in, in, where life is this stage and we're a performer and we go on the stage. And So the science of love wisdom, though, tells us a different story. When we refer... To science here, we refer to serious work that anyone can read into and evaluate. We can find the major theories and hypotheses by looking up things like inactive cognition, inactive, E-N-A-C-T-I-V-E, inactive cognition, or extended cognition, or nonlinear dynamics applied to cognitive science. Some of the major theorists and investigators include people such as Francisco Varela, Ezekiel de Paolo, Gregory Bateson, Eleanor Roche, Carl Jung, Stan Groff, and philosophers like Evan Thompson, Alvin Noe, Anthony Chemerow, many others, many. John Dewey. It's all serious work. These scientists and philosophers merely put into technical language the insights of the wisdom traditions around the world. Together, the science and the love wisdom tell us that our mind depends totally on what we think of as not our mind. In rather narrow terms, our mind is constituted by what we call context, not merely affected by it, but constituted by it, and the reverse is true as well, which means total interwovenness. Our mind thus transcends our skull and our skin. And because of how freaky it is to think of mind transcending the skull of the skin, we remain like fugitives trying to hide behind our own skin. The philosopher Arthur Bentley put this general problem in stark terms. He wrote a rather marvelous little essay in which he invites us to see that the human skin itself human skin itself is what he refers to as the one authentic criterion of the universe which philosophers recognize when they evaluate knowledge and knowing. Let's think that through again. Human skin is the one one criterion in all the universe that philosophers agree on when they evaluate knowledge and knowing. Now, he means, in one sense, academic philosophers, but he also means all of us affected by con- conquest consciousness. And all of us, of course, are philosophers. We're all philosophers, and everything we do depends on knowing. And we have come together here, and now to ask what we know about the world, what we know about magic? Do we know it exists? Do we know there is no such thing? How do we know the world? How do we know the world? Is there a magical way to know the world? Is magic a skillful way to know the world and ourselves? How do we know the nature of our own mind? Do we know it? Do we know the nature of reality, really? Really? Without knowing our own nature and the nature of reality itself, how can we ever expect our actions to turn out for the very best? It's extraordinary. This is the whole problem Socrates dealt with, and we're still in the middle of it. He saw his fellow Athenians going around doing all sorts of things. Making art, making money, making love, making war. He said, listen, people... Athens is a great empire. We're a wonderful culture, wonderful people. But none of you seems to know the true nature of your own mind and the true nature of reality. And that means all the stuff you're doing is based on confusion and ignorance. You don't think so because you don't know any better. In fact, you think you know what you're doing. And you think you have evidence. You say, of course I know what I'm talking about. Look, I got rich. I went and won some wars. I wrote a play, I got awards for it. But Socrates said, look, reality is going to catch up with you. No lack of wisdom goes unpunished. And so I'm telling you, Athens is going to fall apart. And that's what happened. Socrates only showed people that they didn't know what they thought they knew. And importantly, that they didn't know the true nature of self and reality. And keep in mind they really thought they knew. They thought they knew. Many of the people he met with, they were sure. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were talking about. And we see this all the time when our billionaires act like they know what they're talking about simply because they're rich. Our politicians, economists, coaches, self-help gurus, they all act like they know what they're talking about. And so do we. I see it all the time in the horse world, of course. Everybody knows what they're talking about with horses, apparently. Everybody's convinced. I see it in my clients. They're convinced. Sometimes a person comes to me wanting help, and the first uh, uh, significant amount of time takes can take many sessions before they stop telling me how much they know. Oh, I know all that. I know all that. Well, why are we here? You wouldn't have any problems. And when it comes to magic... Skeptics and believers alike act like they know what they're talking about, but do they? On what basis do they think they know? Well, Arthur Bentley realized everyone shares the same basis for thinking they know. That's the funny thing. You say, wait, what? He's talking about me too? Yes, he's talking about all of us. And we're all philosophers and we all have to run our lives on the basis of what we think we know. We do what we think we know. We don't go around flying blind. Not really. I mean, when we think we're flying blind, are we really flying blind? You know? And when we think we're not flying blind, maybe we are. And Bentley, he put it this way. He said, all of us inherently and habitually relate to knowledge as a capacity, attribute, possession, or other mysterious inner quality of a knower. That's a quote. He said, all of us relate inherently and habitually relate to knowledge as, quote, a capacity, attribute, possession, or other mysterious inner quality of a knower, end quote. And he put knower in quotes too. Like there's this mysterious thing. And that seems rather basic, doesn't it? We think of knowledge as belonging to a knower. And we even say, I know. So I'm the knower. We habitually behave as if this knower lives inside a body. I'm in here, I know. We further behave as if that body is walking around in a world. In other words, the world is a setting, a stage. And we're the performer, the player on the stage. Shakespeare's famous lines. All the world's a stage. And then you wonder why Plato would say, hey, we can't have people writing stupid things like this. (laughs) I'll do respect to Shakespeare. But the idea, the philosopher, what Plato was criticizing is, you know, the artists, sometimes they get things wonderfully right, but Socrates found out they weren't weren't wise. They didn't know what was wise and what wasn't in their play. Or if they wrote something wise, they didn't know why it was. If they wrote something ignorant or misleading, they didn't know why that was so. So this is how we relate to the world. It's a stage. We're performers. We're going to play. We're going to win the game, all of it. Doesn't matter if we're a professional philosopher or a physicist or a politician, an economist, an artist, a plumber. Doesn't matter. We relate this way. And Bentley says it should seem crude to us. Is it stupid to suggest everyone bases everything they know and thus everything they do on the foundation of skin? If we look at our actual behavior, Bentley seems to imply that we should find our behavior a bit crude or confused. But why would we behave as if reality has gaps? Why would we think we can walk around inside a bag of skin cut off from living ecologies and spiritual realities? When, in fact, we seem totally dependent on them and they seem to flow through us. And yet we do live like this, don't we? It's just that we made it so habitual as to be totally invisible. We hide ourselves from ourselves by means of our habits of perception, thought, speech, and activity in general. And our culture reinforces all of this Because we seem to need this view of self and mind in order to perpetuate conquest consciousness and all the stuff that goes with it, all the domination and inequality and oppression and racism and all the rest. In other words, the whole history of the dominant culture is the history of beings hiding behind their own skin. And that behavior leads to ecological catastrophe and a lot of inhumane behavior, a lot of injustice and inequality. Ecological thinking goes against this conquest consciousness. It involves intimacy and an immediate sense of interwovenness such that all apparent boundaries are relative. I just said ecological thinking goes against this and what we're implying is magical thinking goes against this conquest consciousness. Magical thinking involves intimacy and an immediate sense of interwovenness such that all apparent boundaries are relative, just as that first principle of magic expresses. At first we might think of the skin as ecologically more akin to the surface of a pond or maybe akin to the soil of a forest. The philosopher Tim Ingold wisely pointed out that we don't really need to draw an analogy between our mind and the soil or the ground in general. He realized we cannot possibly make a firm distinction between the two. Rather than being confined within our skull, our mind extends along pathways, pathways of development that grow and move like roots, shoots, flowers, and fungi. Ingold points out that what we might call the ground of knowing is not some sort of internal substance or substrate or thing that resembles the ground we think of as outside ourselves, but in fact the ground of knowing is the ground we walk. It's a revolutionary thought. Instead of our habit of experiencing and doing our walking as a behavioral output of a mind inside a bag of skin... Walking is itself thinking. And the thinking of walking differs from the thoughts of a supposed thinker inside a bag of skin, inside a cubicle, inside an office. The thinking of mindful walking and the thinking of walking mindfully in wild places differs fundamentally from the thought of someone hiding inside a bag of skin, saying, in an office or other built environment. And let's notice with care and attention that religion and philosophy, as a matter of beliefs we have inside our skin, differs radically from spirituality, love wisdom, in relation to living ecologies, the wider community of life, and in relation to the cosmos itself. The dominant culture is happy with beliefs we keep inside a bag of skin, especially when we use them to try to control what other people do with their bag of skin. But the dominant culture has shown incredible resistance to the suggestion, for instance, that land can be sacred, that power and place go together that we have a responsibility or obligation to non-human beings and non-human patterns of energy and intelligence. In other words, there's a resistance to magic, to seeing the world as magical, treating it as magical. I mean, if the whole world is magic, why do I need a Ferrari? What's that? What's a Ferrari compared to a horse? What's 400 horsepower compared to one real horse? It's not magic. We all know it. We see an eagle, we feel something. We see an iPhone, we feel something. Where's the real magic? As a kind of generalization about the dominant culture, we could say most people in the dominant culture have no sense of the sacredness of the land where they live. No real idea of the processes of life unfolding where they live. No connection with the beings, the trees, the food, the medicines, the animals, living where we live. Or the beings who should be living where we live, but who got evicted perhaps many years ago in order to create the built environment that we find so convenient. And then, of course, we hop on airplanes, we go wherever we want, perhaps thinking we can go to someone else's sacred place and know it because we paid for our ticket or whatever we did that we think earns us the right we don't have that hubris consciously. Consciously, in fact, we might try to express humility. Consciously, we may tell ourselves and everyone else that we're making a sacred pilgrimage or some other nice story. But our human privilege and conquest consciousness still directs the show. We don't behave fundamentally as if we would have to live in a place a long time and in humility and with great passion and care come to know the place and allow it to know us. To allow knowing to happen through our interwovenness with the place. And thus that knowing wouldn't be confined inside the skin. It would be the place's knowing. Think what the world knows about us. Think what we teach it. Look at those degraded places. Look at the landfills. Look at the places where there's extinction, An ecocide. What kind of knowing is that? What's the human knowing? As a generalization about the dominant culture, again, we could say we have no real connection to place, no sense of the sacredness of the land, no sense of the countless sacred potentials for our own thinking. The potentials for magic, they don't exist because it depends on context, we behave as if we could think in a landscape, as if ecology serves as some kind of backdrop and the thinking can just go on or whatever. But instead our best thinking arises as interwoven ecologies, alive, a love and sacred. And when we take these things to heart, our self becomes more noble, more dignified and far more expansive. As Paul Shepard Wonderful philosopher wisely noticed, it liberates us because as he put it, quote, the beauty and complexity of nature are continuous with ourselves. End quote. Instead of thinking that looks like a landfill, our thinking can become the very functioning of nature, rich with beauty and complexity and lacking the complicatedness of our habitual thought. Our thought is complicated, but not complex. It is elaborate and at times novel, but not profoundly beautiful and original, not usually. Worst of all, our habitual thought comes from delusion and leads to further delusion. And that's why we have thought our way to climate catastrophe, with Nobel Prizes and MacArthur Awards and all manner of other celebrations of our habitual thought along the way. That's been the path to where we are now. We have again discerned a difference between magical consciousness and conquest consciousness. Nature is magical. The cosmos is magical. Conquest consciousness fears magic, and tries to conquer it, as it tries to conquer nature. And it uses science and technology as well as education, politics, economics, and everything else it can to accomplish that conquest of nature, of mind, of magic. We have begun to think of the cultivation of magical consciousness as an act of rejuvenation, and care in skillful rebellion against the conquest consciousness of the dominant culture. We have begun to establish an intimacy between magical consciousness and ecological or spiritual consciousness. And we need to go further into these ideas and we need to go a little further into this first principle of magic. We're not quite done with it. We'll wrap that up next time and then try to get into the other two principles of magic as well as we continue our inquiry. Let's conclude by recognizing, acknowledging that Yeats has offered us really a wonderful crystallization of the principles of magic and you might want to continue to reflect on the whole passage from Yeats and reflect on the ways our thinking and being, our living and loving can become more noble more dignified, more expansive, and creative as we allow the possibility of magic to open us. Our thinking can become the functioning of nature, which is magic. If you have questions, reflections, or stories of magic you would like to share, get in touch through wisdomloveandbeauty.org and and we might bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.